is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Arch. I'm Charles Feldman. For five hours, the public waited and waited and waited for word from Monterey Park Police about whether a shooter was on the loose. Why did it take so long? And is there a better way to let the public know what's going on? We'll go in depth. The FDA looking to make the COVID shot a yearly event, but will enough people get it? And classified documents, it seems as if just about everyone has them. This time, the former vice president, Mike Pence. The Oscar nominations are out. We know who's in contention for the big awards and who is not. And it's the who is not part for one major category that's getting noticed. Scientists made a discovery about the Earth's core that might make your head spin or not. We'll tell you what that means coming up. We start, though, of course, with uh, mass shootings informing the public and a possible alert system. Chris Grownick is an expert on active shooter tactics. He's a retired police officer and SWAT team member in Texas. Chris, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you for having me. So we have, you know, amber alerts and, and such for a whole host of things. They let us know when... Kids are missing uh, when there are tornadoes that are about to hit, when earthquakes are happening, depending on what part of the country you're in. Um, Why not a a nationwide system, an alert system, to let us know when there are active shooter situations, and especially if there's a a notion that somebody, a shooter, is on the loose? Great question. So um, there was a bill last year that failed in the Senate. Um, however, there's some patchwork across the country that has systems like this. One of one of the issues that comes up is the color coding system because we have, as you know, Amber Alert, we have Silver Alert for elderly uh, people, and several others across the country. And pretty soon you get into a, uh, the rainbow effect, which you know, with what color means what. Um, so they're trying to figure out a mass communication system. That would be just a good notification. Wait, I mean, are you, are, are you well? Are, are you actually suggesting that is this being held up because we're running out of colors? <laughs> Not saying colors. I'm saying confusion. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that uh, people are just confused about which is the best path. Is it a text notification? Is it a color notification? Um, you know, is it a blue light for active shooters and a red light for fires? And I think a lot of things need to be settled before we get into a, a national system. However, the technology exists now. All it needs to do is to be rolled out. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the mechanics of that, because uh, there's a lot of issues to uh, work out before we have such a system. For example, uh, there are often false alarms, especially in the wake of when we do have a mass shooting. For a little while after that, there are uh, uh, people who hear a loud noise and just the first thought they have in their head, because we're suffering from national PTSD over these shootings, uh, how you know the system would have to be able to weed out false alarms. And then it's got to figure out uh, what areas to put these alarms out in, right? Absolutely. I think there's uh, three things to consider. Number one, I, I've been an active shooter, right? One of the few experts that actually has experience from the inside. And um, it, there's always a second shooter reported, as you said. So tampering that down, we have to figure out what qualifies an active shooter and then what the situation is to come out. For example, the the incident command, who makes the decision that it took five and a half hours to get that information out to other citizens while the person 
is on his way to a second dance place, such as Monterey Park and Torrance, um, number one. Number two, there's two types of systems that you would need. Uh, first responders are not first responders during an active shooter, right? You and I are the first responders. If, if something happens and we're in there, we're there alone for eight minutes. These events happen from zero to eight minutes, and it takes police approximately eight minutes to get there, not because they don't want to, but because traffic, getting in the car, where they're at, location, uh, confusion on the radio, people calling 911. So to curb that, you know, the active shooter prevention project, we created uh, almost a national standard. That's what we're, our goal is. And it's prevention, response, and options. And I'm not selling anything to um, the audience. I'm telling you how it works. But two of the themes, one is the notification. And to answer your question, how do you keep from false alarms? Well, the notification app has gun detection software. On the alert has a patent on it. They've created it. Um, it can detect the gun before someone walks into a location and then notify you on your phone, low, medium, high risk priority. Hey, there's a gun on the way in. You might want to lock down. And that is a very soft softball to throw up there so you don't get PTSD, but rather just take appropriate action. And to do that, you would need some training, of course, because we don't believe in the gunfighter method that everyone needs to carry a gun. We believe your common sense is going to save the day 99.9% right. of the time. Chris, what, what do you make of, uh, since we've already mentioned it, the five-hour gap until the public was really made aware of the press and then, of course, the public through the press about what was going on and that there, there was a suspect who was still uh, at uh, large. I know the L.A. County Sheriff, he said that his department was uh, strategic in its decision to release information, but that he would review what happened. Does that sound okay to you? Well, first of all, I mean, when police make a mistake and being a retired one, I'm the first one to call out that mistake. And and this one, I, I'm not going to say it's a mistake. I think they made a calculated risk and assessment. And they said, rather than causing a panic during this New Year celebration, um, we're going to try and do the best we can with the information we have to track this person down. But that doesn't mean it's acceptable. So in no way am I saying there's a pass there. I'm saying that I think they did the best they could with what they had at the time, but I think it's going to cause them, in fact, force them to look at their incident commander uh, flow chart, if you will, and say, this is how, you know, we need to notify the public. But as I said in an interview yesterday, exactly what could they have done? Knock on every door and say there's a shooter on the loose, or should they hunt for the shooter to stop them? Because you have to give priority of life, right? You have to, some people say the priority of life is the civilians and the people injured, but that's really not true in an active shooter. It's stopping the shooter. That is the primary focus. Stop the loss of lives and then tend to the people that were our victims, would be victims or other. And that's why, you know, our program is about self-preservation, self-accountability and um, these these notification systems. Uh, you know, one I said was on the alert. The other one is sworn by Galileo right. Group. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There's just options. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Chris. Rolnick, an expert in active shooter tactics, also a retired police officer and SWAT team member in Texas. Right now, though, the FDA looking to cut down on the confusion of when to get your next COVID shot. It's proposing the idea of a yearly COVID shot, you know, kind of like what you do with the flu. Dr. Sabrina Asumu is an infectious disease physician at Boston Medical Center and professor at Boston University School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for coming back with us. Appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me on. So how does that sound to you? A a yearly uh, vaccine for COVID, much like we get the flu, although, of course, as I'm sure you know, there are a host of questions about that. Yeah, I would say the positive aspect is really being able to simplify the message. If we can convey to the public that every year in the fall, we know that we have we see an increase in respiratory infections at that time when you're getting your flu shot, also get your COVID shot. It's actually a very simple message. But one of the downsides is that it's really hard to predict the future with COVID-19, as we've seen. And we don't know if we're going to have another variant that's going to um, sort of uh, make us change that approach. So that's what makes it a little difficult. You know, there's uh, conspiracy theories and misinformation, and uh, neither of them appear to be going away when it comes to vaccines. Would having to have a yearly vaccine and then the messaging surrounding, uh, hey, it's uh, COVID shot season, do you think that would help or hurt uh, with the conspiracy theories and the misinformation? Well, there's so much misinformation out there, so it's hard to know what, you know, what new information, misinformation sort of information would would sort of pop up. But I think that what's helpful is, as I said before, simplifying the message. You know, COVID-19 is is here to stay and um, trying to simplify the message that people get used to getting vaccinated every year, I think would help us in the long run. Is it important that we also finally nail down the message to the public, since we are talking about simplifying things, that these uh, inoculations, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna, while they're incredibly good at stopping people from being hospitalized, they're incredibly good about stopping people from dying, but they're not so good. In fact, they're not good at all, really about stopping people from getting infected in the first place. Do we need to finally get that across to people that if you get the COVID vaccine and you do get it yearly, it'll keep you out of the hospital probably. It'll certainly, almost certainly keep you from dying, but it's probably not or may not stop you from getting COVID. Yeah, no, I think that that's been really the challenge, right? We're we're learning as we're moving forward and um I, I agree with you that our message should be like the core message would be these vaccines are really good at preventing you from needing to go to the hospital or dying. They're really good at doing that. What they're not so good at is preventing all infections. And that's why we actually need a layered approach, right? When respiratory viruses sort of rates start going up, maybe that's the time when you use a different layer. You wear a mask in crowded settings or in indoor settings. So I think that that's what we need to do, recalibrate our message and also emphasize that if we want to get back to that next normal, we're going to need multiple layers. When they uh, do the flu vaccine every year, you know, they reformulate it to, to kind of predict uh, where the, the the flu bug is going to go. But sometimes the flu bug goes in a different direction and the flu vaccine's not as effective. So we have a, a bad year of uh, flu. Is there a possibility of that happening as they reformulate the COVID vaccine from year to year? and or Or is there as much reformulation that needs to go on? You know, that's a very important message. You know, uh, in order to have vaccines that are ready for when we're going to want it in the fall, we have to look at all the available data and make our for our best guess for which, you know, variants we're going to need to include and which versions of the of the virus we're going to need to include in that, in that vaccine. And sometimes we get it right. Like this year with the flu vaccine, we actually got it right. And this was a, this was a vaccine that was actually well matched. But other times we haven't been as good at predicting. So I think calibrating the public's expectation to say, you know, we're going to do the best job we can. We're going to 
um, sort of uh, develop, uh, like think of what we need to include in this vaccine. And we're hoping that we're gonna get it right, but it is possible that we may not. And that's why it's gonna be so key and important to use all those layers, mask in indoor public settings, use testing, um, improve ventilation. So all those layers so that we can have, you know, safe winter seasons in the future. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sabrina Asimu, an infectious diseases physician at Boston Medical Center and a professor at Boston University School of Medicine. Later on in the show, Oscar nominations revealed this morning that women shut out for one of the most prominent awards. And we will tell you about the day the earth stood still. <laughs> Right now, though, uh, more apparently classified documents have been found. This time they were found at the home of uh, former Vice President Mike Pence in Indiana. This follows the discovery of similar documents at the homes of President Biden and also uh, the, the hundreds of documents found at the home of former President Trump. This has us wondering if maybe having these classified documents is common practice. John Chu is a constitutional scholar who served in the George H.W. Bush and the George W. Bush White Houses. Thank you so much for joining us. So is this a matter of these papers just wind up in, in boxes and this happens a lot more often than we assume, perhaps all the time? Well, it, it, it happens very often. It happens in every administration. Uh, the government euphemism for this is called classified spillage. And uh, that's that is so it, it ha if it happens often enough that there's a euphemism for it, you know, you got to question it. Now, in the past, we've had uh, cabinet level uh, people prosecuted, you know, for holding on to classified information when they weren't supposed to. David Petraeus, for instance, the former general and CIA director. Um John Deutsch, who was a CIA director under President Clinton, he he didn't have documents uh, per se. What he had was a classified laptop from his time in CIA that he took home and that he connected to the Internet from home. Whoopsie. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, uh, you know, so there have been others when cabinet secretaries, presidents and vice presidents, you know, most of them write some kind of book after uh, after their service. And they and want they want to have stuff that they could use for the book. Is that it? Well, they want to have stuff, but, you know, they're not really responsible for packing up the boxes. It's not like uh, President Obama or then Vice President Biden or President Trump or Pence. It's not like they, they're the ones that are packing their own stuff. It's really the staff that do it. Now, you know, out of the four million uh, executive branch employees in the federal government, only about fifteen to 1,600 of them are what's known as original classifiers that's that they have the uh, the seniority and the clearance to classify or declassify a particular document so john is it, is it also that that perhaps too many things are classified i mean are, are all these documents that they're they're coming up with necessarily really that earth shattering well it could be we don't know in the biden pence cases because uh, they haven't disclosed yet uh, what types of documents were there. By the way, I would also say that for President Biden in one of his residences, when they said that they had six items containing classified documents, that doesn't mean six documents. For all we know, it could mean six boxes or six cabinet, uh, uh, cabinet uh, files worth of classified documents. But generally, you know, for the really important stuff, the top secret SCI stuff, um, you're supposed it's there's a really clear demarcation and a 
striped border on it that indicates what it is. Uh, another problem for President Biden, of course, is that some of his classified documents were from his time as a U.S. senator, not as the vice president. And those are documents that should have never left the uh, secure classified information facility. Yeah, also. and 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 that depends on you know when we find out what exactly those documents were. But uh, right. going back to something that you said earlier, uh, where you said you know that uh, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, they don't pack up their own boxes, and 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 we understand that uh, somebody else on their staff does. But maybe uh, maybe that's the weak point here because one would assume that the the staff members packing up these boxes notice that these are classified marks and would hold those aside, but apparently that is not the case. Is it, is it maybe time to start having the uh, National Archives personnel come in and pack up all these uh, paperwork when somebody leaves office? Well, it, I suppose that could be uh, one solution, uh, except that it's not clear to me that NARA has the staff or the budget uh, to do so. And generally speaking, the White House doesn't like, uh, especially the personal staffs of uh, the vice president, and president, uh, they're not particularly keen on having other people in there taking a crack at these documents. And, you know, when when you have to remember nowadays, when you say document, uh, it isn't just like, you know, the notes of the vice president or something. It's also emails and uh, internal chats and texts and all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of government systems and there's a lot of creation. And therefore, there's a lot of Classified Spillage. All right. Thank you so much. Classified Spillage will be the name of my next band. <laughs> it sounds like a serious condition. Yes. John Chu, constitutional scholar who served in the George H.W. and George W. Bush White House. So have, have you, uh, Rob, noticed anything different about the Earth? Uh, you know, things have felt kind of odd lately, like things are spinning the wrong way. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The Academy Awards have been trying for the past few years to address criticisms surrounding diversity and inclusion. You might remember the uh, hashtag Oscars so white. Well, that is why it came as a surprise to many people after the nomination announcements this morning that no women are up for best director. This follows two straight years of a woman winning the award. Jackie Jordan is a pop culture and entertainment expert who's been following the Oscar nominations today. Jackie, thanks for being with us. Hey, Rob and Charles. Really good to be here. Yes, I think the women in film is uh, definitely um, unhappy about the um, lack of um, women directors. I know uh, specifically um, Sarah Poli definitely campaigned really hard about it. You know what's so funny that makes the Oscars stand out from the, the other um, the other award yeah. shows in the award season is that it's a it's a contained group of people who are actually in the industry, so they're picking for each other. And um, I know that there's been a you know an, a sponge of who the members are on the on the past couple of years and and bringing in more diversity and um, and women to the table in um, the pool who actually pick. And so I think something either isn't working or isn't right from that perspective, if that's what the feeling is that that didn't happen. Only but but let me, yeah, but Jackie, but let me ask you this, because this goes back to the question that, that comes up every year when there are these nominations. I mean, is there an obligation to make sure that there's kind of a quota that when you're nominating pictures, you need to have X number of, of pictures directed by women uh, as being nominees? Or do you have to just go with what, 
as a member of the Academy, you think are the best films. And if they happen to be directed by women, so be it. And if they're not, they're not. Uh, Jackie Jordan, speaking for Jackie Jordan, thinks absolutely not. It should be just it should just be based on excellence of the project and the position. I look forward to when the conversations just specifically on the work and not the value of the person doing the work. Um, but I know from the position of what women in film is saying is that that the, what what is behind the award is the lack of opportunity to get to those positions to even be recognized so that there's a ceiling on what the availability is for the actual work is the is kind of the position that's being taken um, when the, the the gender and the minority conversation happens around the award shows. Uh, who, Which women directors do you think were snubbed and, and should have been included in the nominations? Well, I personally, I, 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 I think Sarah Poli was the one that they were counting on. Uh, me personally, I was, I was, I, I thought the, the nomination, I actually thought was surprised that James Cameron wasn't nominated to be quite honest. Um, I also thought that the director of to, um, the Top Gun Maverick, um, should have been uh, considered for uh, director. So those were my my misses. So it had, um, and that was based, in my opinion, based on the project, not the um, um, not the the gender or the. Um, but you know, the, I, but I always wonder. You know, Jackie, every every year when we cover these things, I always wonder. You know, how many of the members of the Academy you vote? Do they really see all the all the all the films they're voting on? Is it basically you vote for your your best buds? Do you vote for the the people that that maybe gave you a hand in your career? So now you give I'll them a payback. I'll, I'll give you a specific. So this is the first year that the Academy went back to screening since COVID. So the, you know the agencies put on a and movie and the film um, production put on lavish you know, screenings, lavish parties, lavish private rooms. Like I, you know, I remember when um, Natalie Portman was up for Black Swan, you know, I was in a private screening at CAA. Julia Roberts came in the room and introduced Natalie Portman, who was pregnant. Um, and there's, oh, it was for the Jackie O. It was when Natalie Portman did Jackie O. And there was like 50 of us in this room. And then afterwards, you just go under this little deck and, then, you know, it's catered and you get your picture taken with them. You get to talk to I mean, they're so down to earth. That's how these courtships happen. And so it's a very, it, you know, and then there's the Academy screeners. Remember the years that we all got the DVDs mm -hmm. and we you know, shared them with their friends and we had the DVD screenings. I mean, that's really, that that time is really how some of the um, less less popular movie blockbuster movies were picked up. Now it's more download. You get a, you know, you get a key code for a download if you're an Academy member. And those aren't so easy, easy to share um, in the pass around way that we used to be with the DVDs. I was this, um, used to be the showrunner for Sunday Morning Shootout um, hosted by Peter Goober and, um, and Peter Bart. So we were in the Academy Awards cycle. So we did a lot of shows and, you know, the, the shows would, the studios would bring in the director and the, and the movie star and we would we would interview them for the shows. And that's kind of how the campaigning goes. So it's a very it, it's not it it's it, you don't have access to all the movies the way that people think we, you do. Some movies get pushed really, really hard. I mean, we watched, you know, we all went through the decade of Miramax with uh, Bob and Harvey Weinstein, you know, who are masters at getting um, Academy Award nominations for the project. And, and they, the billboards. They, yeah, you see the billboards driving on the road. Yes. 
So it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not the discrimination, uh, the nefarious discrimination that seems to come out after the nominations come out. And by the way, you know, when we, when we, when we, we cry foul, we certainly, we take it away from the other people who were nominated, um, you know, almost saying that their, their nomination is less significant or less deserving. Um, you know, right. so it's an interesting, it's an interesting cry. Um, but how the whole Oscar um, campaign thing goes is is very different. You know, there's even a mm-hmm. there's an Academy Awards luncheon that happens where everybody that um, the studios are putting money behind for the campaigns is there. And um, so that's oh, now, now, yeah. now I'm getting hungry. Yeah, yeah, we got <laughs> yeah, to we'll, we'll get something no. to eat. Uh, Jackie Jordan, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, pop culture entertainment expert been following the uh, Oscar nominations lately. So uh, hypothetically. If the earth stopped spinning, bad things would happen. Uh, we'd all die. I mean, all of it. Well, maybe not me, but everybody would die. Because <laughs> you would hold on. I would hold on, but everybody else would be gone. So it might sound concerning that a new study from scientists in China finds that Earth's inner core has recently stopped spinning. And more than that, the study also indicates that it might be reversing its rotation. So should we worry about some big cataclysm like what we've seen in the movies? There was a movie called The Core, I think, uh, that had uh, that as the plot point. John Vidali is a seismologist and earth sciences professor at USC. He's also the former director of the Southern California Earthquake Center. So uh, uh, thank you for joining us. And the first question is, uh, should our hair be on fire? Uh, no, no, this, this is something that would be very difficult to notice. I mean, and the, these headlines aren't quite right. You know, the inner core, you know, that it's a solid iron ball that's about a thousand mile radius in the middle of the earth floating in the kind of liquid outer core. It hasn't stopped. It's just slowed down by about a factor of a millionth compared to how fast it usually moves. And so, you know, it, it was going a little faster than the rest of the earth for 40 or 50 years, the argument now is it's now just going the same speed we are. So there's no reversal down there. That, that would be very dramatic. So is the, the Chinese study wrong, or are you saying that the way he, uh, he, the study was reported is incorrect? Yeah, the headlines are, are kind of exaggerated, because really it was gaining a microsecond a day, uh, spinning just a little faster, and now it's spinning about the same rate. And presumably in 10 or 20 years, it might be spinning a microsecond a day slower. So it's not a huge uh, change uh, in it's the speed of the inner core. Yeah, I think it's uh, because a lot of us uh, see the Earth as something big and solid, but it's really not. Uh, it's got uh, moving parts, and, and the inner core of one of those moving parts is going to move separately from from the rest of the planet because you, you mentioned the, the liquid uh, outer core on the inside. Uh, but is, is it a possibility? And I think as I was reading about the study, it said there is a possibility this may be something normal, that this this might happen every 40, 50, 60 years or so. Yeah, we don't agree on exactly what's happening, but it's, you can think of it almost like a pendulum. It's kind of it's a, there's a position it likes to be inside the Earth, and it just kind of twists this way and that way a little bit, very slowly over seventy years, is the theory in this paper, um, <clears throat> just back and forth, maybe ten miles back and forth. Uh, so we don't even know up here, except that our day loses a millisecond and gains a millisecond here and there. Can it have any impact at all on the surface area? Could it have an impact, say, on 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 weather or on earthquakes? 
Well, the, the authors of this paper put some kind of tantalizing speculation in the end that it might be tied to the uh, climate. But most of us think that's that's very, very speculative. Um, most likely, we might see some changes in the magnetic field from the inner core moving. There's that tiny change in length of day. Uh, you know, we're not sure because it seems like there's more going on than we recognize, but it, it's hard to imagine anything that could happen down there that would have a serious impact up here. Yeah, w would this affect like a compass or even a GPS? Yeah, the, the changing magnetic field does affect the compass. You know, there's a magnetic north that's different than the true north. And so over decades, your compass tends, it'll be a little bit inaccurate if, you, if you're not keeping it up to date. So conceivably, this could be related to those changes in the magnetic field. But if so, we don't really understand how. The, the core is, is what, several thousand feet beneath us? Uh, you know, the, it's about 4,000 miles to the center of the Earth. And, you know, you have to go about 3,000 miles down before you run into the inner core. Is it it's about halfway down. Is it possible to actually study it up close? No, no. The deepest we've gotten is about uh, 10 miles. You know, we can drill a hole that deep, but then it gets kind of hot and hard to get any further. So we can't get anywhere near the uh, core of the Earth. Okay, let's turn this into a science fiction movie. And there's a supervillain, and he's going to destroy the Earth by doing something to the core. If uh, a supervillain could stop the core, like it, you talked about stopping the core, if you could stop it from moving, what would that do to the Earth? Well, I, I don't know how he would stop it in order to stop it. Well, it's a comic book, so let's let's assume he can. Well, if he can completely stop it, then suddenly the core would be kind of ripping along the base of the mantle at, uh, as fast as the Earth spins, and that would... We probably have tremendous stresses, huge earthquakes. Uh, um, that would be bad. Would I'm, be, I'm just making plans. Down. I'm yeah. just making plans. Yeah, it would yeah Rob, some Rob likes to make plans long distance. You know? yeah. I wouldn't want to be there. You know, uh, but when you talk about the magnetic field, I mean, that actually is pretty serious, even if it has some a minor impact, is it not? Because the magnetic field shields the Earth from dangerous radiation from the sun. Uh, is there a way to measure what the impact on the magnetic field is, even if it's a minute change in the core? Well, we've been watching the magnetic field change for you know hundreds of years now, so we have a good idea kind of how much it changes and how fast. Uh, so, if this is an explanation for how the inner core is being changed, then it you know helps us predict where it would go in the future. Um, but you know, it changes slowly, so. There's probably not any kind of catastrophe coming up. Uh, but, you know, that's why we'd like to understand this better, because, you know, we don't think there's a catastrophe coming, but it'd be nice to know how everything works and uh, not have to wonder. So let's go back in the other direction. What if the if the Earth's core was spinning at exactly the same rate that the rest of the planet was? That means everything is stable and normal, right? Right. Correct. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us there. Uh, uh, John Vidaly is a seismologist and earth sciences professor at uh, USC, also the former director of the Southern California Earthquake Center. I'm not really worried about this because if something goes wrong with the Earth's core, we get Superman. We send Superman down there and he'll straighten it out. Charles just smiling. He <laughs> doesn't know what I'm talking about. But, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm left speechless. <laughs> I tend to do that to people. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been KX in depth for today.